You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Father God, I pray that this morning as uh, we examine your scriptures, as we open up the word, Lord, that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, that we would make you known, that we would truly praise you for all that you've done, but most of all, praise you for who that you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Unless you want to stay in the whole sermon. That's, I mean, that's completely up to you. Um, so um, my, my kids, my boys, just celebrated their, their birthdays in November. Levi turned nine, Declan turned six. But prior to having Levi, you know, I wasn't in the whole birth culture, I guess. I don't know how to describe it. But I didn't know that birth announcements were like a thing. Like you would send out announcements to say, hey, we're having a kid, or hey, our child is born. So prior to having Levi nine years ago, I didn't even know that that was a thing. I thought that people would eventually find out you're pregnant, right? Because, well, you get pregnant and you get bigger, right? Uh, and then they would eventually meet the baby. And, and it was as simple as that. But for many new eager and eager parents, they like to send out birth announcements. And not only is it just birth announcements now, now it's the gender reveals, right? We're wanting to let everybody know that we're pregnant and we're having a baby, right? And we want you to be excited for it because having a baby is an exciting thing. Now, one of the things that's interesting, though, is that God actually gives us a letter. He gives us a birth announcement of his king in the scriptures. So this is something that, that is ancient, but it just wasn't relevant to me. It didn't make sense to me. And one of, one of the most prominent scriptures that's cited for this, this birth announcement of the Christ child of Jesus is found in Isaiah chapter 9, which is where we're going to be this morning. So Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to spend. And if you were with us last night, I spent some time, a little bit of time talking about this passage, but not, not much. I want to take a few more minutes to kind of expound on it. And we're going to specifically hone in and focus on, in on verses 6 and 7. You see, this time of year is where we celebrate the coming of the promised king. And unfortunately, in our lives and in our environments, there are a lot of things that distract us from the true reason that we celebrate Christmas. We could be distracted by the noise around us and forget that Jesus is the actual reason for the season. And here's what's mind-blowing for me. Like, if we actually take a step back and we think about Jesus and his life, the reality is, is God could have left us on our own, right? He could have allowed us to get what we deserve, which is death and separation from him. But instead, he chose to provide a way for us to have a relationship with him. We, where we can be forgiven for our trespasses and have our sins atoned for. The plan was set in motion in eternity past. God knew that we were going to mess up, and he already had a plan in place. And it was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the way of that death and resurrection was for the incarnation. Jesus had to become human. He had to become, put on flesh and dwell among us. So way before this actually happened, Isaiah pins these words in Isaiah chapter 9. This was some 700 years before Jesus was born. This is what he says in Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Now this, like I said, is an extremely popular text at Christmas time. It reveals a lot about this promised king that we are longing for. 
It reveals to us that he is both God and man, that he is going to bring his own kingdom. It reveals his character and his attributes. It reveals his reason for coming. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of dissect and take apart um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 real quick. So the first thing I want us to see is that first, he has to be born. He's both God and man, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. So a child has to be born. His flesh, he is of flesh and he is of bone, and he enters into this world and he is real. You see, many people have different beliefs about Jesus. Some believe that Jesus was only a spirit. Some believe that he is simply an archetype or an ideal to aspire to. Some believe that that we can all achieve our own sort of Christ consciousness, that we can ascend to his position. However, what the scriptures reveal to us is that he is truly God and truly man. The king and creator of the whole universe put on flesh and came to dwell with his people. He came to bring us life. He came to live a life that we couldn't and to die a death that we should have died. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-8, through eight, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he, this is talking about Jesus, emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul is telling us that this God-man entered into humanity and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The eternal God who existed from before creation, the eternal entered into the finite in, in order to die. But in order to die, Jesus had to be born. So what did Jesus do? He humbled himself. He came to us in the most vulnerable of states to fulfill the promises he made, the promise of salvation, the promise of restoration, the promise of reconciliation. And moving from that, I don't want us to miss this, that he is given to us. He's a gift that we don't deserve, but he is given to us anyway. This is not an accident. This is not happenstance. He is purposefully provided for us. He is the perfect gift that brings us from gloom to glory, from darkness to light, from oppression to victory, from chaos to peace. We know that the Father gives good gifts to his children, and the best gift that we could ever receive is Jesus. You see, many of us approach God with belief that he owes us something. Or not only that, sometimes what we do is we try to bargain with God. If you do this, God, then I will do that. And we could often lose sight of the gift that he made available to us in Jesus. And I want us to understand this, that we, what we deserve as sinful and rebellious creatures is wrath. We deserve death. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. That's what we deserve. Our sinfulness and our selfishness create a chasm between us and God that can never be crossed. But God is merciful. God is gracious. God is abounding in everlasting love. So he provided a way for us to be made whole. He provided a way for us to be made new. He provided a way for us to know him and to enjoy him forever. And I want you to notice this. Who does all the work? He did, based on his character, based on who he is, and not based on who we are or what we've done. God's not lucky that we're on his side. God's not lucky that we're on his team. No, we are blessed that he saw fit to save us. And it's so easy to get it backwards. 
So hear me, if all that God ever provided for us is Jesus, he is worthy of our praise. Surely God does give good gifts to his children, but if he never gave you anything other than salvation through Jesus, that is more than enough. That's the good news of the gospel. It isn't about health, and it's not about wealth, and it's not about happiness. It's about God coming to rescue humanity from sin and death. That he died on our behalf so that we may live. Now that is a reality for those who believe. There are going to be those who don't believe. And they're going to endure the wrath of God. So when Jesus saves his own, he's establishing his own government and his own kingdom. That's the next thing we see. He's bringing in his own government. He's going to establish and uphold and create his own rule and form of government. And this comes amongst the people that he saves. One of the things that we did when we were studying through the, group of, uh, the Gospel of John is I really focused in on God creating this new community, this new idea, especially towards the end of John, where he is gathering together people for himself to love and to encourage and to build up one another, to spread the gospel, to have dominion over the earth, to cultivate the kingdom of God. And that is done because Jesus has already established his kingdom. He is the royal divine king that came to rule over and to reign over his subjects. When Jesus came, he established a new kingdom. He came to create a new rule for those that would follow him. This quest for the perfect and lasting government is found in Jesus. Why? Because in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. This new kingdom is based on who Jesus is, his name. Remember, in the ancient world, it was, your name would signify your character. It established who you are. What you were called dictated how people viewed you. And so with this, with this text in Isaiah chapter 9, what we get is we get this child's name. We get his character. We are given a glimpse of what Jesus, this, this promised king, is going to look like, look like with four descriptions. And what do we see? We see wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. Let's take a few minutes to look at these attributes. First one, we have wonderful counselor. The word wonderful here really relates to the ability to perform miraculous deeds. This coming king would be able to perform signs and wonders just as God had in the Old Testament. And in fact, is the fulfillment of those, those um, miracles that God provided in the Old Testament. So if we think about some of the big ones that God did in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, what do we have? We have creation, that's a miracle, right? Then we have the Exodus, that's a miracle, right? We've got um, Moses feeding and, uh, or the manna raining down from heaven and the water from the rock. So these are all miracles that God did to provide for his people. And in John's gospel, we learn that Jesus performed signs and wonders as well. And this was to validate his claim that he is God in the flesh. So in each and every one of the miracles we see in the gospels, Jesus performed these signs and wonders to validate who he is, to point to the reality that he is the promised king, that he is a fulfillment of that promise that God had come to dwell with his people. God's promises were fulfilled in Jesus. So we look at the miracles that Jesus provided, water into wine. We see that he opened the eyes of a blind man. He raised people from the dead, validating and declaring that I am God in flesh. So Jesus' wonderfulness, his, his, his gloriousness is, is seen in the signs that he does. But not only that, he is a counselor. He's perfectly wise. So he's a miracle-performing counselor. He's the source of all wisdom. 
True and perfect wisdom comes from God and God alone. He doesn't seek out wisdom of outside of himself. He doesn't need input from outside sources. He doesn't need counsel. He doesn't need input from you. He doesn't need input from your opinions. He never misses an angle and he never makes a mistake. He is perfectly wise. He provides wise counsel to those who seek him. And as his children and followers, we have access to this wisdom. This is a beautiful thing. Most of it's written down in the Bible. We get wisdom, the wisdom of God from his word. But he also provides it through the Holy Spirit to help sort out the wise life that we can live. And James in James 1.5 tells us that, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. So we read that Jesus is a wonderful counselor, but he's also gracious with his wisdom. He's gracious with his counsel. And if we want counsel, it's good to consult with people. But if we need the best counsel, we need to consult with God. When we see these attributes in Jesus, we see them because Jesus came and he performed signs and wisdom, but we, or signs and wonders, but he also is wise. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus is wisdom in the flesh because he is God in the flesh. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 29 says this, this is also comes from the Lord of armies. He gives wondrous advice. He gives great wisdom. If we want wisdom, if we want insight, if we want to be counseled, we need to run to the Lord. The next thing we see is that the, the next characteristic is that he is mighty God. Imagine this, a baby described as mighty God. For, that's what it says, for a child will be born to us. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. These are all attributes added to this baby who will eventually become king. An infant described as Mighty God should blow our minds. I think about in Luke chapter 1, Mary, after she has a visit from Gabriel, meets with Elizabeth. And as she meets with Elizabeth, John in Elizabeth's womb jumps for joy at meeting the Savior. But not only that, here's what's happening. Elizabeth is an older lady. And she calls the baby in Mary's womb Lord. She recognizes the lordship of that baby. She recognizes the impact of this baby in the womb. She recognizes the impact that this is going to have, not just on her life, but on all of history. We know that an infant was going to grow into be a man and that he would demonstrate the power of God. He would be the mighty one. This word translated mighty here is used by for, and for powerful men or warriors that would demonstrate power and military prowess. So this child that is going to be born is going to be born in great power, in great stature, in great might. He is God. He is equal to God. He's even carrying the divine name of God. Of all the heroes in the Old Testament, whether it be Abraham or Isaac or Moses or David, they never got to carry the name of the Lord. They never got the attributes of God placed on them. But this baby is going to be something special. He's going to be the mighty God. The promised king was going to have the name of the Lord. He was going to exhibit God's character to everyone around him. And we see this in the New Testament in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Or even in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact impression of his nature, sustaining all things by the power of his word. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand on the majesty on high. 
So if we want to see what God is like, we have to look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of what God is like because he is God in the flesh. The power and might of Jesus is shown in his authority over his own life. He willingly laid down his life to offer restoration and reconciliation to broken people. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, it says this, This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I've received this command from the Father. So Jesus here in John chapter 10 is telling his disciples that I have the power to lay down my life, and I am going to lay it down willingly. And then later in John chapter 19, when he's face-to-face with Pilate, Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to, to save you? And what does Jesus say to Pilate? He says, you have no authority except for what has been given to you. Jesus knows that all the power and authority rest on his shoulders. That is why he is the mighty God. The next characteristic is eternal father. His reign will be forever. No other kingdom, government, or empire has ruled everlasting. The longest empiric reign in history was 1,850 years, which is a long time, but it's not forever. God's reign is going to be forever. His kingdom will know no end. Not only that, but he is the eternal father. He is fatherly in character. He cares for and protects his people. He has a relationship with his people. He loves his people. He cares for his children. He seeks out their good and brings them joy, love, and peace. That gives us to our Another attribute, the prince of peace. Prince is a common word used for a government official. And Jesus will be the ruler who brings peace. But not only does he bring peace, but he is characterized by peace. This idea of peace is the the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness or completeness, total well-being, total restoration. He's the one that restores what is broken, the brokenness of sin in our lives that, that we are bound up by. The brokenness of relationships around us, not just with one another, but also with God. This king came to declare and deliver peace. Not temporary peace, but eternal peace. Not a peace solely amongst nations, but a restorative peace between man and God. All enmity, strife, pain, fear, and death, separation, all ended when he established his kingdom for those who would believe. John 14, 27 says this, This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Or in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace of this world is fickle. We need a supernatural peace, knowing that the chaos that surrounds us, we, we are now held tight in the arms of Jesus. Much like with wisdom, Jesus is the perfect source of peace. Now, oftentimes when we think of peace, we think about a lack of conflict. But to have peace, there usually has to be conflict first. And the peace that Jesus leaves us with came through great violence. It came through Jesus' sacrifice, him being nailed to a cross, him suffocating and dying. The ultimate peace that Jesus provides with us is not peace with one another, but peace with God. You see, outside of Jesus, we are all enemies of God. We are opponents of God. We are under God's wrath. But Jesus provided the the way for us to be friends and children of God. 
And he did that through his sacrifice. If we trust and we believe in Jesus, we are no longer under the wrath of God. We have been made right. We have been justified with him. We've been made righteous because of him. And since we have been made right with God because of Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus offers peace to those who love him. Everyone else is under the wrath of God. But Jesus took that wrath upon himself. He defeated sin, and he defeated death, and he defeated the devil. Jesus wants his disciples to know that the peace that he gives is not like the world's peace. His peace is eternal. It isn't forced by the sword. It isn't manipulated. It, isn't, it is achieved through his sacrifice. It is an inner peace that stills our hearts and comforts our souls, knowing that no matter what happens, God is in control. He is working all things out for our good and for his glory. And ultimately, we will one day experience eternal peace when we live with God for all eternity. We can be in a relationship with this divine promised king because he gives us peace with God. Verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9 says this, The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and, his, and over his kingdom to establish and sustain justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The announcement of this divine promised king shows us that there is no end to his goodness and peace. In fact, it will continue to expand until Christ's second advent, until his second coming. And I really want us to wrap our minds around this truth. The dominion of the Lord will be vast. It will be multicultural. It will be multilingual. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. People from every walk of life. There are people every day that God is inviting into a relationship with him. They are submitting their lives to him and believing in the gospel message. People who don't look like you and I. People who don't sound like you and I. One of the problems with people is that we can tend to be a little short-sighted. We can believe that whatever is happening in our part of the world is happening all over the world. We see people on social media, on the news, even family or friends, abandoning their faith, abandoning their belief. And we must believe that this is happening everywhere. But the reality is, is this is a Western culture phenomenon. In other parts of the world, especially most of, the, most of those places where the gospel is hostile towards, people are believing at astonishing rates. There are estimates of nearly 100 million Christians in China, and that number just keeps growing every single day. In a land where you could be killed or imprisoned for your faith, faith is growing. We don't need to take what's happening here and apply it to the rest of the world. God's kingdom is not going to end. God's kingdom is not going to end. I say all this to tell you that all hope is not lost. Jesus is not losing. Faith may be declining around you, but Christianity isn't centered on America, it's centered on Christ, on his dominion, on his kingdom. And it tells us right here that his dominion and his kingdom is going to be vast, ever-extending, that it will never end. As followers of Jesus, our hearts cry should be make, to make much of him. Like, remember a few weeks ago I told you about the shirt that I, I saw that I thought was really cool? It said, make heaven crowded. That should be the cry of our hearts that we should make heaven crowded, that we should make much of Jesus, that we should be cultivating the kingdom of God around us so that people would know and believe. That is our calling. Jesus called us to participate in his mission. The vastness of Jesus' dominion gives us a sense that it's ever-increasing, it's ever-growing, it's ever-multiplying, its prosperity will know no end, and in the presence of Christ's eternal kingdom, we will be forever enjoying him. 
will be forever growing in our knowledge and love of him. Our love for him will increase. Our worship of him will grow. And even when Christ comes again, each day we learn a little bit more and more. We will feel continued presence of his wisdom, strength, care, and peace. We read here that the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace is going to reign from David's throne. This is a promise that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in verses 12 and 13 when, when God promises David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will rise up your descendant who will be, come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this is why Matthew in his gospel account takes a, pays extreme attention to Jesus being a descendant of David. That's why in Matthew 1.1 it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is fulfilling the promise that God made to David, that Jesus is the offspring of David. And again we hear about his kingdom, that he is going to reign once again with justice and righteousness. The kingdom is going to be a perfect reflection of Jesus' character. He's going to love righteousness and punish evil. He's going to restore what is broken. The kingdom established by the Son is going to be the perfect kingdom as God had always designed it. Now who is doing this? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the triune God eternal. Some like to look at the reality of Christ's sacrifice and deem it as divine child abuse. Why did God have to die? But we see here from the scriptures that Jesus was willingly taking a part in this plan. He wasn't forced to endure the cross, but that he willingly gave himself up for the peace that surpasses all understanding, for reconciliation, for restoration, and for redemption. So the question this morning is, is do you know this divine king? Are you aware of his sacrifice, that he died so that you may live? If you don't, he wants you to come to him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to experience his peace, his wisdom, his guidance. If you do, remember that you have access to this king, that you have access to his love, that you are loved by this promised king, and that he cares about you, and you should tell others about the peace that you have in him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you for so much for sending Jesus. And Lord, as we sing this last song, and as we depart from here this morning, I pray that we would remember how great and glorious, majestic, and and awesome you are. I pray, Lord, that our hearts, though they may be heavy around this time of year, that we would know the peace that surpasses all understanding, that we would run to you, the anchor for our soul. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand up. Let's sing together. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.